Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello, this is Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown, joined in the studio today by Linda Nguyen Schindler, who's the Chief Operating Officer at First Council. We're going to talk about legal tech for startups and SMEs. Linda, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Graham. All the way from Singapore. I believe, yes, yes. But not originally from Singapore. There's a long story there. I'm wondering <laughs> if we can sort of delve into a little bit of that today. But oh no, we talked yes. a little bit off air, didn't we? So, so you're you're <laughs> you are a lawyer by training, or what, what's your background? What's your education, Linda? Yes, uh, I um, I grew up uh, in Silicon Valley. I went to law school in in California. And I'm a California licensed attorney. Um, but how I got to where I am, I think, is largely in part to being growing up in a family of entrepreneurs. Mm. So very early on, um, I saw kind of the trials and tribulations that entrepreneurs go through. And so I became a lawyer to help, you know, that the, the small and medium sized businesses and the entrepreneurs get started. Mm. Well, so it was an entrepreneurial family. You were a Vietnamese family that came to California. In seventies or eighties, what was the story there? In the seventies, yes, correct. Um, so my family left Vietnam probably uh, two days before uh, the capital fell in wow. nineteen seventy-five. Yeah, and so um, yes, they they ended up in uh, California, hmm. and um, you know I, I think my grandfather was really uh, drawn to California because of the the sunshine. You know, he hmm. thought that would be you know a, a good, good place to to have the family. So. Yeah. What was your family business? What were they? In? A lot of. The, oh, I mean, gosh. there's a big sort of. There's a huge Vietnamese community in California, right? I mean, they all seem to be entrepreneurial, all on the make, and doing something. <laughs> right. I mean, um, I mean, where I'm from, I was born and raised in San Jose. I think it's like the largest concentration of Vietnamese people outside of Vietnam in a right, city, really. and um, it's very common that you know, you find families of entrepreneurs and I think it's kind of like, it's what they, you know, grew up with. Right. Mm. And I think the history of the country is that they've, you know, gone through a lot of turmoil and changes and, and different countries being a part of it. So you, you kind of have to learn how to adapt all the time. And so I think mm. that that becomes a, a perfect foundation for an entrepreneur. Mm. It's interesting that you chose the, the legal profession, you know, because, <laughs> you know, I mean, being an entrepreneur, there's a lot of you know, that's the mindset is one of taking risks, maybe breaking a few rules, you know, and, but you've chosen to go down a path, which, I mean, from my understanding, I'm not a lawyer, but, you know, risk and breaking rules is not really the done thing, right? How, how did that sort of work right, out with you? Right. Yeah, you no, know, I grew up watching my dad deal by shaking hands with people. Mm -hmm. And they would be in a coffee shop and writing the terms of the contract onto a napkin. And shaking hands, and that, that would be the done deal. So then in my dad's home office, you know, he had these stacks of restaurant napkins. It was very odd. And, I, you know, and as I got older, um, and, you know, they thought my English was better than theirs. So maybe Linda can help us, you know, right. kind of draft something. And so here I am as a kid um, already seeing, you know, what entrepreneurs face, especially when they don't speak the language. And yeah. I mean, let's be honest, I mean, we're not even just talking about the English language, we're talking the legal language, which is mm. very complicated. So I, you know, from a very young age, I learned that, you know, I have to do something, I want to do something to help 
um, all these small business owners because clearly there's a need. And you see that it's very apparent from that sound legal advice is crucial mm-hmm. to, you know, the sustainable business growth of any kind of business. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately for small businesses, um, sometimes they don't feel like they can afford legal advice, proper legal advice. Right. Um, and so this is something that I really felt passionate about and wanted to get into. So you were there with your dad and he was, what, what kind of business was your dad doing back then? Gosh, everything, right? <laughs> um, as a typical entrepreneur, right. what wasn't he doing? I mean, at one point he had restaurants, he owned a video arcade, you know, which was great because we would have Pac-Man at home, you know, <laughs> Donkey Kong and, and, you know, we had the key. So we didn't right, right. have, we only need one Free. quarter in order to play video games for hours on end. Um, so, I mean, you name it. I think he's, he's the, the consummate entrepreneur, right, seeing right. what opportunities there are and going for it. Yeah. Do you think a bit of that hustle rubbed off on you? <laughs> you know, I think it's a part of my DNA. But mm. on the other hand, I think by being there with my family going through this, I also became, you know, like, as you say, like being a lawyer, you kind of see the other side, right? Yeah. You see the the, the risks that are being taken um, at times. Uh, you feel like you there needs to be some kind of basis mm. uh, for, you know, like kind of giving them advice on which road to take or, or at least, you know, giving them the full picture so they can make the decision on their own. Yeah. And so I think I kind of have like both in me. <laughs> mm. That's so important, isn't it? I think it's more of like the understanding of what the founder, I mean, let's say you're dealing with a startup is going or founders are going through or feeling, and you, you can sort of empathize with them. And, and in a way you're not sort of, you, you can speak their language and they can relate absolutely. to you. I mean, it's so important, isn't it? That in, in your business to be able to do that. So yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's important in any business, right, that you connect with your client, you connect yeah. with your audience. Um, and so it's just much more than, you know, uh, kind of telling them the law, but you kind of also, you tell them your story and then they connect with you in that way mm-hmm. and are more apt to, you know, trust you and confide in you. Um, with what they're doing. And, and, and let's face it, with, with these small business owners and entrepreneurs, these businesses are their babies. Yeah, yeah. And, and they, they, they want and need um, someone to walk them through it. Yeah. I mean, this, this is a, a really um, fascinating area. I want to dive into this. I mean, obviously talk about legal tech as well and first counsel and all of that area that you're, you're involved in. You know, before we get there, I mean, I had this conversation earlier today, Linda, with a friend of mine, Dennis, who, who's uh, an accountant in Singapore. And he, mm-hmm. um, you know, we were talking about founders. So typically in any sort of startup, you have two founders. And in some cases, they may have been friends. And typically people go into a business in a very informal arrangement, which, you know, I'm sure as a, a lawyer, you're already your heart rate's going up. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's an informal arrangement and you know because we're entrepreneurs and because we kind of like we wing it a little bit you know we do things on the seat of our pants and you know we just kind of think things are going to work out we go into these arrangements and we say okay we're going to do this business together and let's worry about the legal stuff later on because you know right now we're not making enough money either to pay for it or to make it worth our while right so you know we could deal with all that sort of you know the the founders agreement and the vesting agreements and all these kind of things <laughs> later on. And 
that right. seems to be very, very typical, even for experienced entrepreneurs, they, that sort of belief that it's going to be all right. And do you see that a lot? I mean, in your circles that, you know, startup founders, even though they're quite experienced, are quite sort of naive about this. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if I would say naive. I don't know if I would use that word, but they're very optimistic. And I think <laughs> that characteristic yeah. is something that makes them successful entrepreneurs, right? I mean, you have to have that kind of like optimism gene and or otherwise you would not survive being an entrepreneur, right? Because you have to go through so many, you know, um, so many things to, to get to where you are. So many obstacles will get in your way and you have to be optimistic enough to know how to work through it. Mm. Now, I think what we're doing at First Council, what's interesting is that everyone thinks of legal, whether it be in a big corporation or a small that legal is where, you know, like the, you know, everything gets, goes to die. Right. I mean, that, that's where yeah, you're going right. to get held up yeah. um, in all the paperwork and things like that. And what we're trying to do is look, we're trying to help that underserved the early stage economy, the small businesses, the entrepreneurs, the early stage startups get started quickly. Um, so on our platform, you can incorporate your company. You can um, get the most commonly used uh, legal documents, like when you start your business, like we've separated into, you know, the three, the five stages um, of growth, and then the the most common templates for that. And then we also give um, our clients access to the set of, you know, this group of specialized like gig economy legal counsel. Mm. Um, and so you can get affordable legal help, uh, whether or not you want it for one hour, one day, one week or beyond. Um, those are the things that we can offer for you to get started mm -hmm. right away. Is that specific to Singapore? Yes. Right now we're uh, specific to Singapore, but um, we're looking into expanding in other places as well. Right. I mean, even obviously Singapore's big enough as it stands, right? But, you know, in terms of the activity, especially in startups there, you know, there's plenty of business in Singapore, especially, I think, you know, there seems to be a, an increasing amount of people coming from outside the region Absolutely. into Singapore because Singapore seems to be the jumping off point for a lot of people. It's where you would have your top co, you would, you know, you would register in Singapore, maybe, you know, maybe your company was based in Vietnam as an example, but you know, for the investors, it, it would be better. if you Absolutely. Know. So all these kind of things, Absolutely. Singapore, what are you seeing at the moment in terms of trends, especially that sort of inbound traffic from outside of Asia? Are you seeing anything interesting? Yeah, I mean, that, I was just going to say exactly that is that what's interesting is, you know, we're a Singapore based company. However, we've seen a huge uptick in traffic from mm. countries all around the world, but especially in the region um, that, you know, they're figuring out, look, Singapore is a great place to incorporate, yeah, right? Yeah. There's a business friendly regulatory policy and infrastructure. Um, Singapore's always listed as, you know, among the least bureaucratic countries in the world, yeah. lowest tax rates in the world. Um, the, we have a stable political climate and economy here. And so all of these things, coupled with the government support, you know, of making Singapore a world-class, you know, technological center, um, I think really draws people here and is a great jumping off point to expand into the region. Mm -hmm. I mean, you say that, with authority, because you've lived in Silicon Valley, and you know Silicon Valley still is the de facto for startups, right? It's the place. I mean, it has a lot of, you know, aspects which other startup ecosystems try to emulate, which you know they're nowhere near. 
But, you know, Singapore and, and Asia is catching up in many ways. And I think people come to Singapore and people come to Asia and they're surprised by how advanced things have become, in some ways more advanced. I mean, you talk about Singapore in terms of, you know, bureaucracy, red tape. I mean, you, you, all those sort of rankings that are published in terms of global economic freedoms and, you know, global dynamism. Singapore is always up there at the top, isn't it? In the sense of like, it's so easy to get things done there. I mean, you just rock up at Changi Airport. <laughs> I mean, have you ever queued? Have you ever lined up in the airport? Um, I, I don't think I've ever spent more than about five minutes in a queue unless I've just been really lucky. And it's just sort of indicative yeah, I mean, of how things get done there, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think when you look at Singapore, it's almost, you really feel like you live in the city of the future. You go first, right. you you arrive in the, the airport and you're just blown away. Not only is it so efficient, but it's beautiful. I mean, you yeah, have a butterfly park it. in there, you have trees. I could live you there. Know. <laughs> it's good. I mean, yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. But yeah, I think it's fantastic. But it's a, it's a great sort of, I mean, it's a good sort of I don't know. It's a good indication of how things are organized in a place like Singapore, right? I mean, especially for a lawyer. I don't know how it is in the legal system as well and how that sort of manifests, but that must be a good sign, isn't it? These things are well organized. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's very helpful for the companies that are trying to start up. I mean, Singapore, um, with all of its government support, actually has all these programs and grants to mm. help startups and business owners get started. And they, they hire, you know, they have divisions of people, you know, whose sole job is to help people figure out which grants mm. are, are available to them. You know, I have to say, I mean, it's really funny. When I first got contacted by one of these people, I, I thought they were trying to sell me something, <laughs> you know, you know, I thought, yeah, you can get a $5,000 grant right. if you pay me $10,000. Sounds but like actually, it. no, I mean, yeah, it was too good to be true. And it wasn't, you know, it was actually real. This is Singapore. Yeah. You know, he came into our office and he said, look, these are all the grants that are available for startups. And um, we would appreciate it if not only you, if you used it because you're a startup, but if you told your clients about right. it as well, yeah. because we want people to tap into this and, and we want to, to grow and scale and, and really be competitive, right, in, in the global economy. And so I think, you know, that's really great. Um, but you know, I have to say, like, the, the comparisons, though, because I am from Silicon Valley, I was born and raised there. So you see all of these great things that are happening. Um, and But I also see, like, there's so much room uh, for growth as mm. well. Mm. Um, I think you kind of see culturally, um, you know, a lot of people say, why Silicon Valley? And, you know, why not other places? And you, you just don't realize, for example, that it, the education system, yeah. you, it starts when you're young. Um, I remember you know, being in five years old and you have to do show and tell, right? You have mm. to get in front of the class. You have to bring some item from home, your teddy bear or something. And you have to stand up there and tell everybody why this is your favorite animal, why right, this is right, your favorite right. toy. And so I think you're, you don't realize it, but you're trained from a very young age, um, how to, uh, speak and how to advocate, you know, yeah. and and I think that part of it is getting picked up slowly mm. um, across all the other channels. Because, you know, people can, you know, try to mimic um, it, the economy that's already been mature. But I think you have to also go underneath and see what's underlying, which is is the foundation of the educational system. And that's something that Singapore is actually actively working on right now is to build 
that uh, independent entrepreneurial spirit um, starting from a young age here. And you mm. start to see kind of like the change in the educational system. Um, I volunteer for an organization that's actually an American organization called Junior Achievement. And we go into the primary, secondary schools and we teach them about um, you know, entrepreneurship and financial literacy. So basically, you know, real world skills that can help them uh, once they get out there. Mm. Uh, this is fascinating because that whole subject about, you know, what makes Silicon Gra Valley great. And a lot of people in Singapore obviously have looked to what works around the world and said, well, you know, we take bits of this and bits, bits of that. And naturally that's, that's the way to do it, to, to mimic certain parts of it and do what you can and build on your own strengths as well. But, you know, you go back to the education system in the US. I mean, you talk about the show and tell as a great example. I mean, all, all of that sort of inculcated in the, the, the culture, isn't it? I mean, you have like the lemonade stand. I mean, how American is that, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Did you do yeah. a lemonade stand? Because I'm, I'm British. We never had that. But, you know, every, oh. I sit, you know, you get used to, what is this lemonade stand thing in the movies? And it's, you see it everywhere. <laughs> Did you go through that as well? I mean, I didn't um, do my own lemonade stand because, you know, my family, we had like a million other things right. that you had going on. So I had to help out with that, you know. Right. <laughs> but, I mean, similarly, yes. I mean, I mean, you do see that kind of like that American ingenuity and independence yeah. and, and, but at the same time, you know, you have to craft what's appropriate for the culture. Um, for example, in the United States, another thing that people are shocked about here is, is it true that, um, you know, everyone gets kicked out of the house at 18 years old and then right. they, you know, yeah, yeah. the the family stops supporting them. It's like, it's really a shock to the, you know, this Asian culture that, you know, you would do that. Mm. Um, but, and so you kind of have to, to see not only what, um, you know, what's going on there, but see how you can take those things and adapt it and make it work for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And especially well, I want to sort of unpack legal tech a little bit in a minute, but now we're talking about culture and getting up to that. Cause it's so important to put this into context. I mean, you, you obviously grew up in Silicon Valley. You went to Berkeley. You are now in Singapore. Your family were originally from Vietnam. You've got all of this mix. And you, I think it's worth sharing with the listeners as well. You spent quite a bit of time in Spain, which is like an interesting <laughs> yes. diversion. And I, 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 we spoke about this off air, and I thought this was quite funny because you – you, I mean, we both lived in Spain, so we're both sort of aware of what Spanish life is and the culture is, and there's a lot to take away. I mean, I absolutely love Spanish people, and the culture is just fantastic. And, yeah. you know, I love going there, sitting outside, having a coffee in the sun, all that, just having a talk, you know. All, yeah. all of that's beautiful. And you talk about Spanish bureaucracy, and as a lawyer, I'm fascinated by that because your Spanish bureaucracy is legendary. Right. I mean, how did you sort of manage yourself in that environment? Because you were, you were a legal trained legally trained and especially in california where i suppose being taipei was sort of the norm you know you go to <laughs> spain and it's like okay it ain't done like that around here right you know it's a very yeah. different system did you find that easy to adapt to how did you get on with that yeah you know what no i as a, naturally a type a personality who i'm so used to like things being done in a certain way and especially you're right as being a lawyer i'm, I'm used to there being a, a system and, right. and and everything in place and 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 to know what i need to get to a, you know from point a to point b whereas in spain it seemed like you know point b kept on shifting to you know, like you never knew uh, <laughs> what they wanted when you were right. submitting documents. And, that is and, so true. <laughs> and um, but I, I think what I, I learned from that was, um, you know, it's just like you got to step, stop, step back and yeah. just get perspective. And 
um, things work differently in different places and you kind of just have to go with the flow. I mean, I guess coming from California, you know, we're, we're actually a lot more laid back than, you know, like let's say New York. Um, but, uh, but, uh, still not, not like in Spain, right. Where you kind of have to adjust, you know, your preconceived notions Mm. on how things should be when you're in a different place and you, you adjust accordingly. And I, I, I think, having to go through that was great because it allowed me to appreciate differences and cultures, even though I myself, right. Am, uh, a Vietnam, have a Vietnamese background in the United States. But, but I mean, I think when you go to a different place that has a completely different history mm. and a con- completely different way of doing things, you just have to reset your expectations and you kind of have to uh, have a respect for the culture that they have in place. And then you move from there. And I think you become much more successful if you're yeah, able yeah. to be agile and to adapt, which I think is, is you know, similar to what entrepreneurs have to do in this day and age and actually anybody, right? You, you have to learn how to adapt. And so I think that was a great lesson for that. Yeah. I, I find it interesting. You draw the parallel with entrepreneurs as well, because I always find that travel and I mean, sort of long-term travel, like living somewhere is quite similar to entrepreneurship in a way, you know, you're sort of throwing yourself into an environment where maybe you don't know the process in some, in some cases, right. And you have to adapt and you have to make mistakes. Otherwise, you know, if you travel and you, you can't ask for something to eat in the language, you, yeah. you're going to starve, right? So you have to yeah. learn, right. In the same way in, with a startup, you have to ask for the money. Otherwise you, your startup ain't <laughs> going to get any revenues, Right. Right. Just, just to the point about Spain, I mean, I, my, my personal experience was, I mean, I discovered there was a process and you talk about lawyers wanting process, but the process was very different. It was like, okay, you could get things done if you knew somebody who knew somebody. And the school was kind of like that. You, know, you <laughs> knew somebody at yes. the, the local town hall, it was good. But if you didn't, yeah. you got to wait in the line with everybody else. <laughs> that was kind of right. like, okay, that's their system. And it works for them, right? It's not necessarily how I would build a system, but that's how they right. seem to sort of get on, right? But but I think, again, that's that's a great lesson, right, is that you kind of have to figure out the way things work. You have to figure out who the key players are, where you tap into mm. certain resources to make the best use of your time. Um, and I think that's right a universal lesson. Exactly. And not lose your, you know, your head in the process. That's the process. <laughs> I mean, that's sort of, I mean, you, you grew up in California, you've come to Asia, even though you were sort of Asian by background, you were sort of trained mentally, I suppose, and, and schooled in California. And then you come to Asia. And I mean, I, I went to, I mean, I grew up in the UK and I, I lived in Asia, I live in Japan now. And one of the things I sort of struggle with is that this idea of, I have rights, like, you know, I have a right to, as a sort of a Westerner, I'd say in very sort of fuzzy terms, like to, you know, walk through this door and not be blocked by people because that's how we do it back home. Like, you know, it's, it's very different in Asia. It's a little bit different, isn't it? That culture is like, you don't have so many sort of individual rights to do things. You've got to kind of like give that up a little bit. And I think there's that sort of adapting process that, you know, if you've been sort of schooled or trained very strongly in one particular way of thinking it takes a bit of a while to sort of adapt when you sort of come over to the other side doesn't it yeah absolutely and i think though that my background in having my family be asian and coming from southeast asia helped and also i actually studied in singapore um at the law school here mm. uh, 16 years ago and um 
And so I think that was helpful in kind of, you know, kind of seeing, kind of helping me with my expectations. Although I have to say Singapore 16 years ago was completely different than wow, Singapore yeah. today. Um, but at least coming from that background, I think um, it was helpful uh, in the understanding. Although I have to say living somewhere, like you said, is, is a different story. I mean, mm. You, you have to learn how to adjust and adapt. And again, I think it's, it's a great, uh, the, the, you know, parallel with being an entrepreneur yeah. is that you either adapt or you die. Right. Mm. Um, and, and so you kind of figure it out as you go along and you figure out what resources are there to help you. Um, and then you become more comfortable and then you do what you do best. You yeah. know, like once you kind of figure out the lay of the land and then you, you kind of work on what your goals are and and how this new environment can actually be more helpful. Mm. Um, the key part of that is reaching out for help, isn't it? I mean, that's an important yes. part of being an entrepreneur or whether you're sort of moving to another country. It, you know, especially, I mean, if you come from the professional realm, it's not necessarily the, the, the default, is it, to reach out for help. But as an entrepreneur, you are kind of relying on other people all the time. Uh, but you know, let's let's talk about that. Let's sort of bring this around to legal tech a little bit and startups. Uh, what do you find? Uh, there must be sort of repeat patterns of startup founders who make mistakes. You know, when they're starting out, <laughs> what are those sort of common mistakes? Let's talk about some of those. You know, two founders get together, they start a company, whether they actually incorporate or not, but they agree to build this next billion dollar app. What are sort of the typical mistakes that people make in those situations that can be easily avoided? Yeah, I mean, what I, I've seen a lot of, and I think this is not just in Singapore, but uh, common everywhere, is that I find that our biggest competitor is Google Search. <laughs> <laughs> um, that these you know founders and these small business owners, they don't want to spend the money on the, the legal aspect of it. They just kind of Google a document right. and move on with it, right? Well, the problem is when you Google a document, you have no idea what jurisdiction it's in, you know, the laws of the country, what kind of terms are in there. Um, I heard a horror story about one of the startup founders. They downloaded an, an employment agreement from somewhere in Europe wow. where you have to have like, you know, one year notice period to terminate <laughs> an employee. You know, and can you imagine Singapore does not have those kind of laws. Right. And when you're a startup, a small business owner, and you're struggling already, you know, you know to run your business on and run it lean, this kind of thing can be crippling. So yeah, yeah. that is why I think what we offer is so important is, is it's the way to get started, but affordably. And the way we're able to do that is because we have our platform do most of the work. And to help you get started, mm. which takes out, you know, the attorney time um, to help you with those documents, right? You can, it's very self-service on the platform. And if you need any help, you can engage one of our first counselors is what we call our curated specialist lawyers who work that gig economy style, they're freelance, and they can help you on, on demand, you know, mm. whenever you need them, either whether it be for an hour, a day, a week, or, um, or more. So, um, and so I think those kind of things like so, suggested that we can help get the, the company started is so crucial mm. um, and feeling and that they can feel like they can afford it. Why, why have you consciously, obviously, sorry, let me say that again. You've, you've consciously just decided to build this unlike a traditional law firm. 
because you could easily be built a lawn firm to do this kind of work, right? I mean, how, how did you sort of go about that? You built a platform. How did you just consciously not sort of gravitate back towards being a you know the firm because that must have been very tempted because you know you you grew up in that environment effectively you know in, in the legal sense yeah well i mean i think look there are some things that a, you have to go to a law firm for because what first counsel is not we are not a law firm um what we can help you with is like the business legal support that helps you with that early stage stuff that yeah. that can get done in a much more efficient and affordable way so having a law firm i'm not saying is we cannot replace a law firm um, you still need law firms and our parent company is a law firm. Mm. So for those items that our clients need help with that require legal advice from a licensed law firm, we can then refer them to our parent company. So in that way, we can help our clients from cradle to exit and beyond mm. um, and and that they can kind of stay within one family and be reassured to know that, you know, all of their resources are in one place. They don't have to go to a lot of different places for their different needs. Mm-hmm. But I think what you can do is you can just do a lot of the, the, the legal items that is just more administrative almost in the beginning, you know? And I think that's why you see a lot of multinational companies. They have all have in-house counsel, right? Mm-hmm. They all have these in-house legal departments. And why do they do that? It's to save on the legal costs of hiring and outsourcing to a law firm. So if big companies can afford to do that, why can't the small businesses and the entrepreneurs, why can't they have access to their own in-house counsel? You know, mm. it's, it, it, mentally, I think it's a block where you think I can't afford to have my own in-house legal team. Well, now here we are. We're offering, you know, these early stage economy uh, businesses, the small businesses and entrepreneurs, the opportunity to have their own in-house counsel and only on demand. So they don't need to carry the entire salary and the entire department, hmm. you know, year, year in and year out. Like they only come to us when they need it. And then, so in that way, it's like the Uber, the grab right. of legal is that you only pay for it when you need it. And that's how it should be for that stage company, right? As you said, they don't need necessarily, I mean, maybe for more specific issues, but necessarily they don't need most of their work done by law firms, right? They could be serviced by somebody like you, which is where you come in and fill that gap in the market, right? Right. Okay, good. I've got an understanding of that. What's sort of typically the most popular service? What do people ask for the most from First Counsel? Um, People come in and they want to get incorporated. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they typically come in and they get, you know, the co-founders agreements, employment agreements, shareholders agreements. And so just basically those very early stage documents just to get them going. And, and what I, you know, find that's also interesting is they kind of come to us in blocks of time, you know, they kind of hit us at first, right. With incorporation and all these documents. And then you, then it's silent for a while as they, as they're growing their business. Hmm. Um, and as they're growing their business and they need more, right. Um, they have more employees now they have, uh, their businesses changed and evolved. So then they come to us for like the next set of documents. And so, um, and I, I find that interesting because, uh, you know, it's not just like a one-time thing or, it's not even just something in the beginning and the end. It, it's a continually evolving yeah. um, thing. That's that, that, and we're able to evolve with the companies, which I think um, is something that they really appreciate. Yeah, it's a relationship, isn't it? Because 
as they become successful, they'll ask for more services from you, right? Absolutely. And I think that's why we're able to make it more affordable is because I don't think we see it as taking any piece of the pie. Right. I think we see it as actually helping to grow the pie. Yeah. And so we're oftentimes teaching our clients to use legal services for the first time ever. So I think when they are successful and they're growing and scaling, then we're all more successful as well. I know you mentioned Google as an example being a competitor. I mean, obviously, it was slightly humorous, but it's so true. I mean, <laughs> like you talk about incorporation as an example. I mean, if I was to start Googling around for information about incorporation, a couple of clicks later, I'm, you know, ready to form a company in the Seychelles, right? Because, you know, I look at these websites, they look fantastic. You know, I've got a picture of the Seychelles. Yeah. I'm not going to pay any more tax ever again in my life. <laughs> I, I won't have to do any kind of, I've got no filing requirements, no audit, and I, I'm not even going to be on the public register. That sounds fantastic. It's $650 I'm in, right? That That's yeah. the problem. That exists out there, and there's a massive OSP business out there, isn't there, that does all of that. And I think that that's, you know, it's a bit of a honeypot for startup founders that they got to be careful because, you know, they're selling products effectively. And it doesn't matter if you've got a company to say shells and whether or not you pay tax, it's not their problem, right? Because, you know, you're gone, you're, they're dealt with. So how do you deal with that? Because, you know, you must be competing against that market because they're very attractive and they're sort of, you know, I don't know if they're offering the right products. I mean, some of them obviously do but there's a lot out there that's just selling you something that looks nice. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And we definitely have, you know, clients come and say, look, I, I found on this other site, like this other company, all they do is incorporation. They're offering this service for free. They're throwing that in, um, you know, and it's at this price point. And I say, look, you know, we're offering you a quality service at the, at the lowest price point we can possibly offer because we know that it's a quality service, that we know that we will, we can walk with you every step of the way mm. on this journey that you have with your baby, basically, right? We, all, we I talked earlier about how these startups and, and the small businesses, these companies are their babies. And, yeah. and at the end of the day, you just don't want, you know, to, to get something online printed out and, and then that's it. I think with things like this that are so important, I think it's still vital to have uh, the peace of mind that someone's going to be with you on this journey. Mm. And, and I think that's what separates us from those types of companies is that not only can we help you with the incorporation part, but we can walk you through the next steps and beyond, especially with our, having our parent company as well. So that you're not alone. Um, that, and I think that's a huge selling point. Yeah. And, and it, it, I think maybe one of the reasons why founders don't, pay enough attention to it is they don't realize like you said they're optimistic and they don't realize what the, the cost <laughs> cost of getting it wrong is i mean i was speaking yeah. to michael smith from seed plus earlier today we we're just doing an interview and he was talking about i mean obviously he's a vc so he sees a lot of founders come to him and some of those founders have their cap tables all wrong right you know and that's a really bad starting point for a, a startup right because mm-hmm. you know you have to unpick that and so on mm-hmm. but you know we we found as we just like to charge into it well yeah it's all right we'll work <laughs> it out not a problem but you know is this if somebody gets into that situation where they they screw up is it possible to come to you and you can help them and unfix all that is is everything fixable because you know at what point <laughs> I'm sure there are people out there listening and thinking, oh, I've really screwed up setting this up. I've had a disagreement with my 
you know, my business partner or, you know, we couldn't work things out. Is, is everything solvable? You know, what kind of advice would you offer? Well, I mean, I'm not going to say that, you know, we're like a magic genie and that you make whatever <laughs> wish you want we can make come true. Um, but we can help. I mean, um, I think a lot of times when these, when the entrepreneurs, the startup founders, they're, they're in it, they're, they're in it very deep, right? And it is a deep level of commitment on their part. Because again, like I said, this is their baby. Um, they've invested incredible amount of money, time, blood, sweat, and tears. And so sometimes it's very emotional and they mm. can't see through that. Um, it's very difficult to see that, you know, what can the solution possibly be? And so I think that's when it's good to get an outside perspective. Um, mm looking in and kind of helping them through that process be, and help them see clearly when, you know, understandably they're in a position at that point that they can't see clearly um, because of, you know, all that they've invested in the company and the relationship that's now, you know, not working out. So I think that's something that we can definitely step in and, and be a real um, outside, uh, like an outside set of eyes and, mm. and helpful in that way. Yeah, I mean, that's so important. That's so useful. I, I've been an entrepreneur for 20 odd years. And I've made so many mistakes and I'm always much wiser when I look back and say, oh, I should have done that. And I would have said nine times out of 10, if, if I had somebody who could just call me out on something, just logically look at something, because you talk about emotion, we get absorbed into this, right? Right. And just somebody to look at something else and just see something from the outside and just pull you aside and say, hang, hang on a second, or, you know, you should do it like this. You know, I could have avoided a lot of time lost and heartache, but that's a different <laughs> no, story no, for another podcast, no, right? No, but that's, those are, all, those are all good things, right? It depends on what you do with, with, exactly. with those lessons, those mistakes after they happen. And, and I think a lot of times it makes you a, a more successful entrepreneur later, right? No one wants, I was talking to some VCs and they said, you know, we don't want to invest in someone who's only been successful. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> what are they going to do when things don't work? Right. Um, I don't want them to learn on my dime. <laughs> wow. You know, they, they, they've already, I've already seen that they've learned that lesson on their own dime. Yeah. Um, and now they're ready to, you know, learn from that and do something bigger and better. Um, now I'm not saying that I, I, I then I, I, I asked, well, then how many mistakes is too many? And then they couldn't answer that. <laughs> but, I mean, at least like, I, I think it, it's an indication that, um, that you tried yeah. and that now you bounce back, you're growing and you're learning. And that's, I think that's something that's very important for people to see. Yeah. Great advice. Love it. Hey, Linda, we, we can't talk about your, uh, you know, setup in Singapore without sort of talking also about, um, women and female entrepreneurs in Singapore? Because I know you're mm. a board member of the American Women's Association of Singapore. And yes. I, just answer me this. I don't know if it's it's sort of one of those sample biases, but what is it about Singapore? Because, is it, <laughs> I, you know, obviously I'd like to see the data on this, but for some reason, and again, it's a purely unscientific and you'll probably get, you know, get quite annoyed by a, a very – unlogical if that's such a word approach to <laughs> analyzing this but it seems to be there seems to be a, a lot more female entrepreneurs in singapore per capita if you like than anywhere else in the world either that or they're just more vocal or there's more there's a concentration <laughs> of type a females in singapore what's going on do you sense that is there something special about what's going on there well i mean uh, ian e i am with the american women's association and the women corporate directors as well and I think that um, with Singapore, what you have is 
a concentration of a population that's very highly educated. Mm. Um, and so I think that definitely has a, a large part to do with it. Um, and, um, and now you see the, the government pushing for, you know, more women to be on boards, uh, more programs, you know, to bring women back into the workforce and, and all of these things, you know, when you see like a, a government and, and the corporate sector and the, you know, the public sector and the private sector working together on, on initiatives, you see that it, it really makes a big difference. Um, and so that's what I've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very positive thing as well. I mean, it's not just Singapore as well, but across Asia. It's a very interesting trend, isn't there? That there seems to be, I mean, there's been a lot written about Chinese female entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. and especially billionaires. I mean, looking at the data recently that something like 65% of the female billionaires in China were self-made. Whereas, you know, in America, it's 20%. In Europe, it's like seven, you know, 93% inherited there cash if you like Mm. but also interestingly vietnam i think vietnam Mm -hmm. has one of the highest rates of female company board um what's the word engagement or you know Mm -hmm. involvement than anywhere else in the world i think that 30 percent 30 percent of board members in vietnam are female which i find Mm -hmm. fascinating because you know you would assume that these sort of early stage markets were in some way a bit behind you know like socially as well but you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I just think, at least you know, from what I've culturally, I, I think that that doesn't surprise me because I think Vietnam, in its history and in its folklore, women have are always held, you know, this like really high place um, in in the history and in the family. And so, with that in mind, I, I think that's not surprising to me. And especially as we spoke before about the the entrepreneurial nature. Uh, having to develop when you live in a country that's gone through so much, so many changes, mm-hmm. having to adapt. I think all that confluence of those things together, um, I think then it makes sense mm. that you would see that. Yeah. It's fascinating. Cause I mean, not to spend too long on Vietnam, but obviously with your background, I thought it was quite interesting is that I saw some, some data as well come out that uh, a survey of, of countries around the world and they surveyed people on, you know, whether they thought globalization was a force for good. And I think Vietnam, the Philippines and Vietnam were the top two countries. You know, there were something like 80% of the respondents said globalization was a force for good. And right at the bottom, you had like UK, France, and maybe the US as well. <laughs> but I just found that fascinating because, you know, given their history, you would have thought that, you know, you thought, oh, wow, th- these people are Philippines uh Vietnam and India was the other one who who for many many years have been sort of at the other end of globalization right of the receiving end the negative aspects of it but they they seem to be very mm-hmm. sort of positive and this is you know bring this back to the whole Asia thing there is that real sort of sense I, I don't know if you sense it but you know when I go around Asia I sense that people sense that there's a real positive change and something's happening and it's for the good and I really get that vibe and that energy is out there. How about yourself? Do you, I mean, do you experience that in Singapore? Because it's a lot more developed, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I think also, I mean, you see um, that in Asia, the, the small business stats are astounding, right? I mean, I think uh, SMEs account for over 90% of all enterprises here in Asia and, and over, you know, between 20 and 50% of the GDP, depending on the, the country that wow. you're talking about. Mm. And so you see so much potential for growth because these market has completely is not has been untapped. 
Uh, you see companies, big companies now going after this because they see that's where growth is going to be. Um, so you see Facebook talking a lot about going after small and medium-sized businesses. You mm. see um, Prudential. They just launched here in Singapore like a marketplace uh, based on blockchain, the first one of its kind that's you know supporting small and medium-sized businesses because – you know, they see that there's like 90, something like $90 billion on the table when, mm. you know, with the SMEs. And so there's so much potential for growth in that sector. And in Asia in particular, that constitutes so such a high percentage of the economies that that's why I think right now you, you kind of get that feeling that the sky's the limit because mm. it's been untapped. Yeah, it's good times. Great times. Great to be involved in the Asian ecosystem. Hey, you know, you came to... You said you studied in Singapore in the early 2000s. You came to – Yeah, you, okay, yes. So, so you, you came to what, 2002, was it? Roughly at War S. Mm-hmm. All right. right. I came to Japan in 95. I mean, back then, Japan, Singapore, these were kind of a little bit different to what they are now. Um, where I'm going with this question is, is that, you know, the reasons for people to move to Asia back then – I mean, this is a long time ago, right? But, you know, very different from the people moving now because it was a much bigger risk back then. And yeah. I, I think, you know, you moved to Singapore, it was a bit of a risk, a bit of a challenge. Maybe it was all kind of, you know, what the heck? Let's just do this and it's going to work out fine. It'd be a great experience mm-hmm. for me and so on. But right. now, now people, I mean, we talked about people moving into Asia now, especially small businesses, startups and so on. What, what would be the case if I was a, a startup in the Valley, or anywhere else outside of Asia, what would be the case for me to come to Asia? And how would you sort of pitch that to somebody as to, you know, beyond the sort of personal reasons, right? Why do you think I should come here? Right. Well, I mean, I think I heard, you know, I happened to be listening to one of your podcasts, right? <laughs> Go for and it. I think you said something that, that was really interesting that um, coming from San Francisco, I think you said something like uh, in a five hour flight, you'd have access to, you know, almost 500 million. Yeah people. Uh, whereas here, the same flight, you would have access to like three and a half billion people. And so I think when you see that, when you see those numbers, it's staggering, right? The, the, that it's so um, tempting to come here uh, because, because of those numbers, because the, the market that you have access to is so much higher. And uh, the challenge that you do face, though, is, for example, some of the other countries, it doesn't, it's not even a very stable or the political, political climate, but people still want to try to get access into those con- countries. And that's why Singapore is a great place mm. to incorporate and be a jumping off point because it makes the investors more feel more secure that, you know, you're incorporated in Singapore, that Singapore's rule of law, like they, they can enforce contracts and agreements, but that you're still close enough that you can do business um, in the region. Of course, now that being said, it, it, you have to come in with your eyes wide open and understand that just because, you know, you got, you understand Singapore doesn't mean you understand its neighbors. Every country is, is, is very, very different so in the region. And that's why it's really important when and you come here and you want to grow your business um, to get those resources and get tapped into the different ecosystems in every country. Um, there's so much potential here. And, and like you said, I think you, you go around, you go to each country, you can just feel the excitement. There's a buzz. Um, there's so much anticipation for what the future holds. 
Linda Nguyen Schindler, everybody. Linda, it's been a real privilege having you on the show. I really enjoyed you sharing your story with us. Where can people go and find out more about you? Yeah, well, you can um, find us on uh, firstcouncil.co on the website, or you can just look me up on LinkedIn. <laughs> Excellent. We'll put all the details in the show notes. Linda, it's been a real privilege, as I said, and thoroughly enjoyable as well. Inspiring. I think, you know, more lawyers should make their way to Asia because, you know, to bring the skills into Asia as well, they'll be surprised by how developed things are. Just, you know, get over here. As Linda says, go experience <laughs> these. And you, you can start the process now. You can do it from, you know, outside of Asia. You can, you know, make contact with First Council and get the ball rolling, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're here to help. <laughs> You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.